You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. Today, I am joined by a very interesting person. His name is Maxime Plessia Buki, uh, Bushi, <laughs> and we were talking about your last name. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about names. He is, uh, you are representing Switzerland right now because you are Swiss, and you have three interesting, I'll call them main job areas. A lot of people know you as a tattoo artist, and a lot of people know you as a type designer, and of course, uh, you are also a watch designer. You have been doing some Hublot watches ambassadorship, along with designing some watches, which is very exciting. And in today's show, oh, first of all, hi, how are you? Hi, I'm well. How are you? Good, good. I, uh, I, I get, I get so into talking about our guests. I realize like the audience hasn't even heard their voice yet. You should probably say something. <laughs> yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you, Ariel. It's it's amazing to be uh, to be here talking with you. And uh, you know, I know we'll be talking about a lot of things we. Uh, passions we have in common and uh and and you know obviously i've been a very long time uh fan and and uh of your own work and and uh, what a blog to watch has been for watch culture in general um so oh, thank so, you. yeah it's, it, it's it's a big thing for me to be here i i have to say i've really enjoyed so many of our discussions about type design fonts you know typography um, this this sort of show is is to talk about Swiss design. You are going to explain Swiss design to the world. And if you like fonts, Helvetica, which essentially, if you're cultured, you know Helvetica has a relationship to Switzerland, um, is one of the most popular fonts in the world. In addition to being a place for watches, uh, tell us a little bit about Switzerland and fonts. That okay, it's a very interesting question. Um, I think that the, the the history of fonts in Switzerland is actually very similar to the history of watch making in Switzerland in the sense that it uh, is not where it originated per se, the same way watchmaking came uh, to a large extent from France and but but was but found in Switzerland a place to to thrive and to sort of you know, to, to grow, um, that, that's more or less what, uh, Switzerland has been for, um, for design and graphic design in particular, uh, modernist graphic design to be even more particular and, um, and type design, um, type design, there's a bit of a confusion where people, uh, not a confusion, but it, it's, it's part, it's a bit of a, metonymy, um, if you will, um, for graphic design in general, uh, because of the term typography can be used both for type design, but also for the use for typesetting. So the use of typography in graphic design. So, um, so I think part of the reason why people think of typography or type design in Switzerland is in part because of a sort of confusion by a complicated uh, semantic slip uh, <laughs> uh, with with typography and, and and graphic design in general, but um, but there's yet yeah, there's yet something uh, truly 
about type design. And I know I'm already breaking the 30 second rule uh, in terms of giving an answer, <laughs> but I don't really see how I can make that shorter here. Where um, uh, printing dev de developed in, in Switzerland and the Netherlands because of printers who were fleeing essentially uh, France and um, certain, um, you know, historically fleeing certain regions where they were being um, persecuted or constrained by the local authorities who uh, wanted to, to sort of control what they were printing. And they found in the ne Netherlands and Switzerland a place where they could really uh, develop and, and publish what they wanted to publish, including uh, more, you know, subversive or uh, things in relation to, to, to Protestantism, for example. Um, so what, what years are we talking about here? Because we're going back several hundred years. Yes, yes. No, we're, now we're talking, you know, 17th century, probably, maybe even 16th, 17th. Um, and and what happened then is that the the, the printing started developing in in Switzerland and um and then everything that came with it or the the graphic skills but initially the design and again it's the same with watchmaking the design of watches the same way the design of graph of of graphic products so uh, publishing products um, books pamphlets uh, things like this and the typography that works that that comes with it um, it is historically completely related to to the, to the technical context so, so the act of printing the act of making a watch and and it's only much later and actually in the past 50 years um, maybe 100 years and most, but really in the past 50 years, that the skills, the, the, the design part has been progressively separated from the technical part of, and, and that they are sort of, you know, so, so to, to, to break it down, you have designers, to make it simple, you have designers and then you have engineers, and then they, they sort of come together to create a product, either a, uh, <clears throat> a, you know, a publication or a watch. But essentially, those skills used to be pretty much the same people. The same people would have both of the skills, the technical skills and the design skills. Um, so anyway, back to, to <laughs> typography in Switzerland, um, that that really, so, so typography that was developed in the 20th century in Switzerland because the, it was a very fertile ground for graphic arts in general. But really, even Helvetica really originated in its design in Germany. So most of its most of what is considered Swiss type design is really German type design. Um, but you know, yeah, it's the same with architecture as well. Obviously, Switzerland has a lot of very important ar architects, but they're all doing Bauhaus design or, or what is in the lineage so of Bauhaus. I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of like look at this from a big picture. And again, thank you for that that sort of introduction of the concept. I it if it sounds complicated, it's because it is. But what I'm hearing is that Switzerland, similar to Japan, actually, is not necessarily an inventor, but a refiner. And Absolutely. they will borrow concepts and they will say, okay, we're good at these types of tasks in Switzerland. What, what tasks can we bring here uh, that, that we can apply our sort of culture to? Like watchmaking requires a lot of detail. It's okay if it takes forever to make. It's okay if it costs a lot of money to produce because you have the uh, ability to sell to rich people or, or whatever. Like there's sort of certain qualities in Switzerland that lend themselves well to certain types of, uh, I'll call it just industry. 
and types and publishing and watches for a long time, and some of them still today, just made a lot of sense to do in Switzerland. Correct. Absolutely. And, and it applies to all levels. Um, if you look at Switzerland, it's not a place where risks are taken, but it's a place where people have the ability to recognize an extremely, you know, something that, that has a really good potential and take it to the next level. So let's just talk about this notion of Swiss design. Yes, there's this notion of Swiss made, which for people that don't know, was essentially invented by uh, the watch industry. It really wasn't a thing before the watch industry said we need to make this into law. And the whole reason there's a law around Swiss made is so it doesn't actually have to be 100% Swiss made. But Swiss design is something that has an international renown and is, you know, it comes with certain values, right? There's no specific product you think of when you think of Swiss design, but there's a certain set of values that anything that is Swiss de- Swiss design has. Now, what do you think those things are? You're a designer from Switzerland. When people say Swiss design, what is it you hope that they're talking about? I think um, I think what, one thing that happened is there is, I think there's a there's something in the Swiss culture in general. Swiss, Swiss people and historically Switzerland has mostly been extremely, you know, mostly um peasant culture, uh, a place where um, you have people who were, live in a, in a very small territory and know it really well, um, work the, you know, work with natural resources, um, you know, have this sort of connection with, with the land and, 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 and that essentially managed to resist um, uh, invasions from uh, nearing countries and um, the, aristocratic you know powers uh of 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 the the countries around switzerland um so so swiss people have this sort of very pragmatic um nature of of farmers and people who you know live close to nature close to to what they have around but because switzerland is, is a very fertile and and overall protected environment then those people never needed wealth from the outside and, and, and were able to become very prosperous and, and wealthy through natural resources and, and wealth from Switzerland. Okay, there's, so, there's, there's something uh, to be said about that, like you're fortunate, right? Like not everyone's born in a place that the land has a lot of inherent wealth. That's Do the Swiss consider themselves uh, lucky? And then again, how does that sort of translate into the optimism of Swiss design? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's that sort of very strong sense that Swiss people don't really need anything else. They don't, you know, they're fine by themselves. And and sort of coming back to, to, to design and Swiss design, I think what it does is people who um, are very pragmatic about the things in general, and they're no-nonsense people who don't want extra flourish and, you know, embellishment. They want things to really work well, let them do what they, they have to do in an efficient manner, uh, and, and sort of potentializes what they do, which is... And so what is interesting is that that resonated with the whole Bauhaus and modernist um, ethos that, that appeared in the you know, I'd say I'd say really started in the late nineteenth uh, century, but really took shape in the in the early twentieth century, um, and then that resonated with what something that was had already been and was always the way Swiss people approached any 
things in general. So so that resonated and, and that's why it sort of blew up in Switzerland. But obviously Switzerland did not had to go through the same you know, hardship and, and, and issues during Second World War. And that way, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making it very short and there's much more to it than that, of course. But I think Switzerland managed to really, you know, uh, do well with, with all those things. Um, and, and so coming back to, to, to Swiss design, I think the idea is a no-nonsense, efficient and well-made thing, uh, which is, is not, you know, it's not meant to be, rough it's really it's not meant to be refined either switzerland is not a place of refinement but the idea there was a shift in the idea of, of what refinement in is and whether the the function becomes the form which is the the real you know the the, the, the modernist ethos um where where function becomes form that that resonates with switzerland perfectly because it's all about function in switzerland and that was in itself the response, the sort of, uh, um, the the, you know, the the re- a certain response of European culture against the sort of flourish and uh, over refinement of the, I'd say, you know, the the the, the aristocratic slash Catholic um, aesthetic that had prevailed as the top tier. Uh, aesthetic previously. So basically talking about French and Italian. Yeah, exactly. French, Italian, but to, to a large extent, German and Austrian as well. You have a little bit less of that in um, in, 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 uh, in uh, Scandinavia, but you still have a lot of that. Spain, of course, you know, and, and but, but even if you look at um, if you look at the Protestant, uh, the, the instructions um, or, or the, the, the aesthetic ethos of pro- protestantism uh, you already have a certain sense of form and function you know it's going back to the word uh getting rid of of uh figuration um etc which you find in islam by the way um which which really is a reaction to the the over um you know the sort of uh, outrageous you know, uh, luxury of of Catholic um, aesthetic in, in general, and so you really have. I think that all those things are linked, and there could be you know hours of conversation ju- just to, to sort of break so that down. Here, I'm actually wondering because again, I have a little bit of an art art appreciation background. Obviously, you do as well. Like, there's a very studied element to being able to understand the culture of art art around the world because if you're not exposed enough. It's very difficult to understand how art connects with culture, connects with history, et cetera. So I'm just I'm thinking about like how many people sort of know what we're talking about. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about cost and price. You mentioned, you know, Bauhaus and its relationship. And yes, of course, there's a lot of that aesthetic, but Bauhaus was really about keeping costs down because things are supposed to be industrialized versus, you know, created with pure craftsmanship. And Switzerland is very um, very tolerant of high price. You know, there's this idea of practicality and all these wonderful concepts, you know, not, not necessarily having too much flourish. Yet when it comes to price, essentially all bets are off. There's, like, there's no ceiling. And I'm not saying there isn't a market for it, but what is it about Swiss culture that has allowed it to act unlike, you know, even expensive Italian, French, German stuff, 
and be in some areas the most expensive. I don't I don't see it as a bragging thing, meaning I don't think that Switzerland has to be more expensive because it thinks its brand needs it, but it's completely okay charging more than anyone else. Um, you know, maybe you can help explain that because I'm not sure everyone really thinks about that. Um, I, I, it's a very good question. You have to look at it from the point of view of what does, uh, of you have to put in perspective what price is. Um, if industrialization, um, and, and so you see sort of the extreme, kind of the tail end of that whole uh, fantasy of industrialization in America. That's really, you know, the idea that things can be very cheap, not so that, but, but to do what with the extra money, not to make it more attainable for poorer people. Sure, you know, marginally, yes, but mostly to be able to have more more wealth, more, more, and more material wealth generally to make it, and, and things, you know, things are a bit blurry originally, but really industrialization is not, is not a, a, a socialist, you know, endeavor. It is, it is really something with the idea of increasing profit, increasing margin, um, uh, profit margins, and, and increasing volumes of production, um, and, and therefore, and, but with the the increased volume, you need an increased amount of uh, of buyers. So, uh, so so making it available to more, but obviously to to sort of uh, help people, you know, want more objects for the same amount of money. And so, uh, but but that is so that is the sort of industrial logic. Whereas Switzerland, the logic in Switzerland is that you don't necessarily need a lot of things, you know. But you are going to use more money for something for the same thing that is done better. And I think to a large extent, not that it applies all the way to what is now sort of Swiss luxury, because obviously that way of thinking has been, you know, you have uh, when you think of watches, watches are now a luxury product. They're, they're, they're something that is superfluous that people don't actually need. So obviously the that logic that worked within Switzerland as long as Switzerland was mostly producing for itself uh then met different expectations and a different context for for their production. So historically well-made things are privilege. So you know better fabric, better craftsmanship in general were things for nobility. So all of a sudden, things that were made not for nobility within Switzerland, but for Swiss people could be decontextualized outside of Switzerland as a luxury product, because in other places than Switzerland, those things would not have been for the average person, but for a privileged caste. And so... Um, so is, is, it, is that true, though? Is it true that Swiss people buy less than other people like i don't know oh, is yeah. that true oh yeah absolutely people people in switzerland will wait longer have less 
they, people in Switzerland do not like a, a, a quick turnover or big turnover of things. People, you, you really want to have something that you can live with, which again, translating in the watch world through, I think to a certain extent, even if it's hypocritical to an extent, or if it becomes, if not a hypocritical, but it becomes a bit of just a sort of nerdy thing and a bit of a, of a, of a how can I say that? A sort of, you know, constructed, uh, um, uh, artificial kind of kind of idea. But the idea of of things that take on, um, that becomes more that 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 build their charm and their attractiveness over time is definitely something where most people in Switzerland, if you've family's been in Switzerland for a while, will have as everyday things, little bits of furniture or, or artifacts that will have been in your family for, for generations, maybe centuries. And that is that is absolutely normal. And it's something that is extremely seen as some, something extremely uh, uh, positive and, and good when you have something that is such a high level quality that it can be passed down like that. Um, whereas something that you keep having to buy is, is something that people feel alienated by. No, it's true that, you know, your average Swiss watch is meant to, to last a long time. Yet, of course, the irony that I think is important to pick up is the economics, you know, force the industry to produce it like a commodity where new ones are purchased all the time, essentially by the same people, not because they break, but because they like having them want more of them. You know, what would the average, you know, Swiss watch brand manager say when faced with this sort of dichotomy of, these products are produced using these values of, you know, lasting durability, yet your sales model requires people to buy more all the time. Is, is, that, an, is that a conflict of interest or is that, is that something that is rationalized as well? <laughs> That's a very good question. I think you, um, you see all kinds of things. I think, I think when you are talking about a newly appointed, you know, CEO, whatever, someone who just came from, you know, you're talking about a brand that's within a big group. And then all of a sudden, some guy who was, it's often guys, sadly, so it's probably a guy um, who um, just came from a jewelry brand or, you know, uh, I don't know, another type of industry is you know, just all of a sudden appointed CEO of a big historical watch brand, which, by the way, has probably already changed owner like twice after having been, having been uh, resuscitated from, you know, the archives <laughs> of of the, the, the Swiss um, house of companies or whatever uh, um, it has. You know, and, and that, that person has to sort of all of a sudden completely adopt the, the rhetoric and this idea of, like, oh, yeah, tradition, this and this and that, and Swiss watch values, and that person's probably not Swiss either. Anyway, um, that the, the fact that this person is, is just serving a certain speech, um, yes, like this, you know, you'll, you'll find a lot of, you know, weird, you know, things in that. But... Um, the other way around, I do, I absolutely do believe that even within, um, even the way Swiss watch brands approach the sort of mechanical growth and the sort of, you know, modern um, approach to business, globalized approach to business is in many ways extremely 
still uh, the, the the growth models are in themselves pretty conservative, pretty, you know, uh, um, work within those rules and, and that sort of mentality of, of, you of how see we the work. Brands hesitating to grow very large. It's true. I used to attribute it to a lot of different things, but I guess what I see a lot is watch brands that aren't allowing themselves to scale to the sizes they need to be in order to compete on a global level. I mean, these are brands that want to do everything all over the world at the same time. And, you know, they have, you know, relatively small teams to do that, yet they have these large ambitions. Maybe, maybe it's that, maybe it's just sort of this fear of growing too big um, that creates that type of resistance. Could it be that or, or am I misunderstanding? It? Um, it, it's that and, and so, several other things, but I think, uh, you, you need to think not only in size at a given time, but but over time, um, the way the way Swiss companies work, the way Swiss you know if if you're the way Swiss people manage their money, the way you know you kind of consider that your your capital, your wealth, your brand, um, you're just there for a little while. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know. The, the idea that you don't fully own something, um, if you see, you know, what I'm referring to is, is something that really <laughs> um, is, exists throughout Swiss society. Um, and, and, and there's something that I completely identify with, you know, the idea that you create something or that you buy something and that you will take care of it and it's passed down um, and it needs to continue to exist. 100 percent is is true. It really is the way Swiss so, people so think. Let's talk about that because I think this is something which a lot of North Americans can't really identify with. And this notion is that you inherited something either directly, like a property or wealth or a company, uh, or you you were hired at a, at a company that sort of got its mojo long before you were born. And so you inherited something that was made before you and your obligation is to maintain it and preserve it, not necessarily grow it or modify it or alter it because it's not your thing. You are just sort of a caretaker. Whereas in America, very few people inherit anything, anything, anything like that at all. Homes are new and don't really last that long here. We tear down ones they are not made to last. Uh, companies are a lot newer here. Um, people don't tend to have, you know, old families with landed estates and things like that. So for the most part in America and, and a lot of the world, you have to make your own wealth. So whatever you end up having, which earns you money, was yours because you invented it, or at least you know it very well enough to change it. Whereas in Europe, especially in a few other parts of the world, um, you might, like you said, inherit things that are made to last that you just sort of don't feel comfortable changing because you don't feel like that's your role in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's true. Correct. Not true. No, that that is correct. And the other way around, I am starting to have to deal with um, how what, what you described about uh, North America, where things are not made like that. Um, that's not the way people think. But also, even if you try to think like this, it, it's very difficult. And to to find ways to to invest your your efforts your money your legacy in uh things that will last and some things that will that you can count on not for 10 or 15 years or 20 but for 
50 or 100 years, uh, I find that extremely difficult here um, and, and, and to, to wrap my head around that and, and find, yeah, like how to, what to make of your, of your work, of your money, of your time uh, that, that does have this sort of um, durability. And it's something I find a, a little stressful right now. So, okay, again, you're Swiss, you live in my hometown, you live in Los Angeles where mm-hmm. I am. And um, talk a little bit more about that with some anecdotes when I call, what I, for what I call culture shock. You know, I, I always mention my culture shock in some experience I have going to parts of the world, Switzerland included. Now, tell us a little bit about your culture shock. You sort of alluded to it, but talk about some of the things that a Swiss person that has this sort of Swiss mentality to durability, longevity, and design. You come to Los Angeles, clearly there's reasons you like it here, but what are some of the most shocking things to you? Um, well, it's not really, I can't really speak in terms of shock. It's more sort of because, because I've been, I've been coming here for a long time. My wife is, is from here. And, and, uh, so, so there's not really that it's just very, it's almost, it's this sort of subtle, uh, ramping, uh, cognitive dissonance or alienation of, of not really what is, you know, obvious in, 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 you know, obvious immediately, but what what you start realizing over time. And so for me, from the way uh, things are being handled with uh, the COVID, with COVID in general, with the va- from the vaccines to the communication to the way things are being communicated uh, on via official channels, I mean, that is mind blowing to a European person. It's not even Swiss. It's like the 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 the, the fact that you know the the city the the, the county and the state and then the federal government cannot have one coherent message uh, to the point that <laughs> with with me owning businesses here, I for for three weeks I could not find the information on what I was supposed to do. And this is this is unbelievable. I mean this this goes against everything that I always thought would, you know, were the basic of what you know, a country should be like, and, and granted, I'm, I love it here. I'm not, I'm not judging. It's just that it goes against things that I never considered would be, you know, could be different, <laughs> you know? So I'm just adjusting to that. And then you have, I hear you. no one's ever dealt with that though, you know, we just never really yeah. dealt with that. We're just like a new, it's a new yeah. thing. We're just sort of like, it's not broken until it actually breaks and we see it broken and then we'll fix it. You know, I, I don't know that, I don't know that today's society, we put so much time into, uh, preventative measures. And I, I, I agree, you know, in America, it's sort of like, well, even though it theoretically could break, it's not broken right now. So let's not, let's not stop it from doing what it's doing. Exactly. Um, for me, another very sort of the more obvious part is, um, but it touches to, to slightly more subtle, um, sort of ethic or, or sort of vision of society is, you know, the idea of, of, of transport and the idea of spatial, um, in, in Switzerland, there's a sort of rule that is not, I don't think it's constitutional, but it's, it's, it's an, everyone knows that in Switzerland, you are supposed to be able to, to move, uh, via public transport wherever you live, even if certain areas are are very remote and you might only have one postal bus, um, you know, coming to your to your village once a day, but you're not supposed to be stuck in your village 
um, if you don't own a car, typically. Whereas, you know, obviously, it's the whole other side of the spectrum where the amount to which it is almost, in, you know, the level to which it's impossible to to, to move around uh, if you don't have a car, which I which I don't. So, um, so that that's quite interesting because it touches on very subtle. Um, you know, Vision Society, speaking of which, um, I encourage anyone to, to rewatch Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, the, the, the movie, because there's a whole, what I understand is that the part, the, the, the plot, then the idea of um, Los Angeles having public transport and then public transport being dismantled by um, corporations, Judge by automotive. Assemble the trolley. True. In the in the movie, exactly. Judge Doom, that was the bad guy. Exactly, he wanted exactly. to disassemble the trolley. So he bought this beloved trolley car. And why? Because he wanted to disassemble it because he was representing the, the the companies that were making the freeways. This is took place at the time when Los Angeles' famous freeways were being built. And they saw public transportation as as a threat to um, people buying personal transportation. Exactly, exactly. And that is that is obviously you know the, the the LA that we know today, um, but but you know again coming to to little detail, it's not details, it's, it's huge. But living, how do you interact with space, people? Um, you know, it, it it's really more that because I need to change even the way I interact with friends. You know, there's only so many people you can see in a day. Um, if you have to make an appointment with each person, you, you have to set a date and a time uh, to see a person. And there's only so many people you can see in a day if you have to, to commute for a half hour or 45 minutes to, to get to, to a certain person. Um, so there's something extremely deliberate to any social interaction, which, by the way, is is also interesting. You have it's it, and it's completely different. And of, uh, I knew that I expected that. Um, coming here, but but now having to to actually rethink my uh, my interactions practically and live with it is uh is, is I would say the culture shock. But uh, I enjoy I enjoy the challenge. It's interesting though because I you know I see it both ways, and I think that there's a lot of things that Swiss people don't necessarily recognize are the outcomes of their sort of regulations. So for example, when you're talking about, you're talking about, you know, civil engineering and coding and things like that, about how the buildings and, and the laws and stuff like that. And once you start to have all these required things like public transportation and access for this and access for that, it crowds away your ability to have free space to do whatever you want with. Because there's so much required stuff you have to do. You, you never really get around to the stuff that you want to do. And in America, it's, you know, it's not even so much a fact in L.A. It's mostly uh, middle parts of America where they have a lot of space. But people do incredibly lavish things with space, you know, crazy lawns and driveways and places that are relatively modest. And unless you are the richest of the rich in Europe, you would never have a driveway like that. You know, so I think that there's this ability to live large in America because of the lack of regulation that has allowed us to feel like you can do wild things here. And all the regulations can be helpful, but also limiting. And so it's, it's like, where is this trade-off in culture between prescribing that people act safe and allowing them to live a little bit dangerously and see what might come as a result? You know what I mean? 
I do, but then without wanting to push that too deeply into sort of, you know, philosophical uh, uh, considerations, uh, then you have to also define what what wanting something means. Because at the end of the day, sure, people can do, quote unquote, what they want here, but then they all want the same. Everyone has the same car, the same house, even way more than in other places where quote unquote, you can do a bit less of what you just want to do. So define what, you know, when what you want to do is completely conditioned by what you know via, you know, media, via entertainment and, and culture in general. You know, the, this notion of what you, of wanting something and what, you know, can be can be debated, uh, you know, and, and questioned because, because for, for me, but more interestingly, uh, in my opinion, um, I think that there still is so much, so much to be decided, and so many um, symbolic, cultural, and and literal, literal uh, uh, power uh, antagonisms and struggles going on in the in the U.S. in terms of who what kind of and if not what kind of groups of individuals what but what kind of groups of ideas and values uh take power uh and and appropriate space uh physical space um symbolic space informational space um it's still very much you know these sort of struggles that that don't exist in Europe have not existed since you know I don't know the, the the middle ages because because things don't move in Europe anymore like that or at least or um, everywhere in the old you know older in the old world um yeah whereas here the the ability to to take space and to 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 uh display power via via you know the 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 this via you know exposing your things that that are supposed to 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 show how rich you are or, or things like this whether it's it is true or it's not but um this sort of constant um yeah like constant uh display of wealth and and power is is you know i think it is really um it's not just a game it's something that is um, that that is somewhat harmless uh, in sort of normal prosperous times. It, it's harmful to, to some levels of population, of course. But um, what happened recently uh, politically uh, in, in D.C. and things like this is completely related to that. And um, people who, you know, people who feel that they are being um, deprived of certain type of uh, of power, wealth, and, and things and privileges, then uh, take it out in certain ways and in very extreme ways in in some in some times, such as what we saw at, at the Capitol. And so, uh, but but things like this, you know, could never happen in 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 um, in, in Europe or well, could have happened to some extent, but not to such you know to, to such levels you know you've seen the the gilets jaunes in in france and things like this all in all you know you have you have constantly these um these kind of 
you know, unrests and things like this. But also they are very quickly, the system knows how to, to deal with those. Whereas here you sort of build tension and then it explodes at a, at a certain point, or at least that's how it, that's how it appears to me. Yeah, we have explosive politics. That's, <laughs> that, that's, that's our status quo now. But it's interesting how all these different cultural manifestations are part of the answer of something that would be as business-focused as American design. If you had a conversation with American design about American design, I don't know that they bring up a lot of these things. Uh, on the topic, the final topic of design, uh, I guess two questions, actually. I'll start, I'll start with the, the non-fun one and then go with the fun one. Uh, but the you know, ethics, you know, you're talking about all these cultural elements that go into design. Ethics is a big part of it. Now, as an American or as a, as a you know, a typical Westerner, I see a lot of like Swiss watch brand partnerships with, you know, various types of ethically sourced gold and diamonds or sustainability. That's really the big thing now. And it actually, I think to someone that doesn't know the culture that well, it looks like a lot of marketing opportunism where it's like mm-hmm. someone read like, you know, read like a report. This is like people buy things that are associated with a good cause more and like, oh, great, let's do that. But it is true that there's a lot more sense of ethics in Switzerland, at least when it comes to certain types of things related to um, human dignity and uh, uh, environmentalism um, and sort of respect for your neighbor that isn't as big of a deal elsewhere. And that really sort of invades itself into everything. Talk about how ethics has an implication on Swiss design. Yes. Um, yeah, I think I think we have to go back to pra- sort of pragmatism. And um, I, I think that Switzerland is very interesting because it is not in itself a very socialist or social system. It's still an extremely liberal, not in the sense, not in a moral sense, as you would, um, but in the business sense. It's, it's a very, you know, capitalistic place. Um, uh, in, in that sense, is is very you know f- for liberal markets, um, but it is also extremely, again as as I mentioned yes uh, earlier, um, it, it, people in Switzerland want to see long term. People want to want to trust, want to, and people in Switzerland, uh, you know, um, environmentalist um, movements and things like this have been present in Northern Europe and Switzerland for, for now for a very long time, for, for 50, maybe 60 years. And even to a large extent started uh, in the early 20th century and late uh, 19th century with uh, things such as, um, you know, Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy, uh, anthroposophy um, and, and these kind of new age, um, uh, religious new age kind of um kind of uh, philosophies. So, um, so, so back to, to that, I think there's the idea that a society needs, needs stability. Stability is essentially the sort of long-term prosperity um, is very important. And therefore you do need to see things coming. And, um, and I think that that's, that's the sort of cautiousness of uh, Swiss society that um, is a, bit cynical sometimes, if not uh, downright, um, you know, uh, demagogical, I guess, but <laughs> also, also it, it works and it has been working for thousands of years and it will continue to work because of that. And I'm so, trying to bump um, down 
to a formula. Tell me if tell me if this sort of accurately explains it because I think mm -hmm. I like to boil it down. Okay, so stability is pragmatic, mm -hmm. right? So you that's that Swiss people would agree that stability is pragmatic. I mean, in order to pursue something which is stable, long lasting, that's a pragmatic choice, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, and to be unpragmatic, <clears throat> unpragmatism is unethical, right? So it's a sin, so to say, or a bad thing to do in Swiss culture to be unpragmatic. Uh, yes, but that, but Strictly it's speaking. the other way around. <laughs> um, yes, that that is that is a good that that's interesting, but that's so, not. Uh, so to I would not say, sustainability be seen as unethical. I guess that's the point. No, so being ethical is being pragmatic. If you take care. The more you take care of your environment and the people around you, the more you're going towards prosperity oh, and stability. It's as simple as this. So the, they reinforce one another. You 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 want to be of ethical, just pragmatic, but within ethics, once you subscribe to the fact that I do want to be ethical, pragmatism is highly valued. And, I, and I'm I'm simply saying that that in not all ethical rules is pragmatism as highly valued, right? Like you could be an ethical person without thinking about pragmatism all the time. Like in, in like charity, for example, you could give so much, it's impractical. So in some cultures, charity is seen as being the most valued thing. But if you have to offset it with pragmatism, you're like, well, I couldn't sustainably continue to give that much to charity now, could I? So Correct. it's interesting. That those, it, it's, it's, I, I think that sort of, especially with Germany, and and how ethics sort of had its very sort of almost scientific you know start from there in, in philosophy. There's this notion of there is a universal uh, truth. Of course, you know different perspectives. It was difficult to take into consideration. Everything was sort of like an if-then statement. And it's it's actually interesting because you can you can argue both ways about the pragmatism of sustainability. Some people might say if you hold on to something forever, nothing ever changes, and therefore you cannot evolve. And other people might say, well, yeah, if, you, if you're not safe about it, then you won't have stuff to last. And I think that's interesting because as long as, as you know, money, for example, keeps moving, positive things can happen. So it's just interesting that around the world, you can have these very like equally powerful arguments about the ethics of pragmatism. Again, I'm not trying to advocate either way. It's just interesting that um, it is something that can be argued. I don't think Swiss people talk about that all the time. A brief moment to talk about footwear and our sponsor, eBay. Whether rare dead stock or the latest release, find the exact shoe you've been looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the spot to find that pair you must have. Shoes are also now part of eBay's latest buyer protection program. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee tag that includes a digital stamp of authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process. For sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers $100 plus, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com sneakers today. eBay the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. I, absolutely. And I think what you, for me, you you create a new link, like you sort of close the circle on this. The fact that um, 
being ethical is pragmatic and being pragmatic is ethical closes a really interesting circle because one thing that Switzerland, that Swiss people absolutely uh, was the was the the word like the despise and and flee is is incoherence and and Swiss people love need things to be you know very coherent very you know well thought out like we, you see that on on legal uh, on every level and and having lived in England for over a decade I can tell you that's the opposite of English society where nothing makes sense things contradict themselves on every level from from administration to legal. To, to, to business. So in Switzerland, you need, even if it's convoluted, everything that, like there needs to not be any contradictions. So once, and that's, that's one thing that I find important um, to say, because also we started pretty, you to go quite deep in the conversation immediately. And, and maybe we want to go to more like fun, you know, stuff about watches now, but, um, and I don't want to get too deep in, in this, the ethics of design, but I want to say, one thing, I'm pragmatic about my ethical views as well. Of course, I have extremely precise uh, morals and, and, and philosophies and etc. But but I want things to happen. I'd rather have compromise on on the means and to, to achieve, to get closer to my ends than not compromise and not get anywhere. So I think a lot of good things happen, happen for bad reasons. And I think that when it comes to marketing, a lot of very, you know, superficial and somewhat, again, you know, if not hypocritical, but, you know, companies do things just to look cool, environmental, you know, social justice, blah, blah. But then you still create a general uh, sense that this is something good to work towards. And even if what you do is, you know, even if you might be called out because it doesn't fully, it doesn't do anything or you don't follow through or whatever, but still you are pushing things in the right direction and you may be forced to follow through later because you're exposed as not doing it. And then you're taken at your own, you know, in your own game of, of claiming that you do this or that, and then you have to actually follow through. And I think a lot of things happen like that. And when it comes to social justice, when it comes to uh, uh, going against racism or sexism, homophobia, you know, you're talking the mass. What needs to change is not the people who who are homophobic or racist, those, you know, you might never change their minds. The problem is people who don't really think about it and might might try to go in the right, you know, what I consider the right direction because of social pressure, they don't have necessarily uh, a sense of being for or against, but, you know, what you need it for things to truly change is a mass, is a, <laughs> is a critical mass of people doing the thing, even if they don't fully believe in it. You know, and I think that people are doing the right things for the, the wrong reason, wrong quote unquote, but not because it's fully sincere and, and but because of that's the thing to do. You know, I think the biggest mistake would be to 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 dismiss those people and to be or, or these entities and be like, oh, no, F you, because you're not perfectly pure about it. Nothing happens truly that's perfectly pure. You need to be pragmatic about it, especially at a time when from social justice uh, issues to environmental issues, things need to happen. And if they happen not quite perfectly, well, it's still something. So anyway. 
in Switzerland, and this just sort of adds a real life flavor to what Maxime was talking about. There's these signs, and they, and this they have different ones around the country, but they all essentially say like they're they're like road signs, but basically say like slow down or take your time or don't rush. And there's these I'll call them public service announcements, you know, in the form of ads in Switzerland that basically say take your time, don't rush. So yeah, you kind of just push people gently to what you think should be shared values. Um, the the last question, and we'll, we'll, this sort of moves things in the watch direction, is use watch design to help explain what what Swiss design would think is ugly, right? Like like I don't, I'm not saying you have to mention specific watches, but like what would be some things in watch design that would be considered ugly that any any Swiss design would want to avoid? Oh, okay. So I'm not 100 percent sure to understand the question, but there's there's a lot. I think this is amazing. Even though I I just want to say. Swiss, I think for me, Swiss design does not really think in terms of ugly and not ugly. And this is definitely something, you know, that you see in the watch world um, that is exemplified by the watch world. But can you just explain exactly what you wanted to say? What's your question? I wanted to ask this larger question about, you know, we've been talking about philosophy and essentially non-tangible. We're talking about tangible stuff. Design is stuff. Yet we're talking about all these intangibles that lead to tangible design. And again, it's very philosophical. Again, for like a college class design, they'd love it. But for the real world people that want to enjoy watches, I'm trying to connect it back to things that they can identify. And so it isn't that there's anything a Swiss watch is trying to be, but there's also a lot of things the Swiss watch is trying not to be, which ends up constraining it to certain design things. So I guess the question is, what would a Swiss watch want to avoid? What would it consider ugly? Because aesthetically, that's very important because when people see a particular facet of Swiss design, I'd like them to think about what it was that the designer was going for and what mm-hmm. the designer was trying to Okay, so I think, I think in general, the Swiss design ethos um, considers not ugly, but considers... Um, uh, you know, not, not desirable, superfluous, um, superfluous things. And um, so this idea of, of function before, before form uh, is very important. And, and you can see in the watch world, um, it, it's, it's sort of, there's a sort of, you, you get a pass on this. If you can put that under um, the, the, the 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 umbrella of craftsmanship and tradition because Switzerland has this sort of also its own um con- not contradictions but you know yeah I guess contradictions and and it's not yeah. as pragmatic as it claims to be sometimes um so I would say when when you, you take the watch world um to to talk about watches now um I think you have this idea of function and everything you know needs to be sort of justified by function and it, there's almost zero discussion around the arbitrary design uh decision in the process of designing watches it's all about you know take articles in in watch media um when occasionally you have someone who says oh i think the proportions on this dial are unsightly or not really what I like, but this is almost, this almost never, I mean, it's so rare that anyone 
brings uh, an opinion on design choices, sort of quote unquote arbitrary design choices. So anyway, um, a function, even when if it's uh, a made up or relatively made up or arbitrary, but at least there needs to be a justification to formal choices and a formal choice that would not have a justification that is considered ugly in the conceptual sense of the term, not in the visual sense of the term, or not desirable. Interesting. So that would that would imply that everything that sort of is made ends up being, you know, functional, yet you know in the watch industry that while Swiss watches tend to follow certain rules of legibility, th- there's a lot of, you know, ex- I don't want to say exceptions, but there's a lot of watches that simply don't follow that. Um, you know, is it is there is there a break in the system? You know, or, or maybe they're just looking at something else. Because again, you and I see watches from Swiss companies all the time, and you're like, "That's not good." I, 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 rec- I would recommend against making that. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. I think there is an issue, or at least uh, 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 something that is a bit um, th- that can still be improved in the way watch design. Um, actually, or, or watch production in general, watch industry includes and, and sort of takes notice and then includes the competences that exist in terms of industrial design, in terms of graphic design that, that exist outside of the watch world, but somehow that the watch world seems to not really be aware of. And you know, occasionally you hear about this or that brand has worked with a type designer. Um, I, I can think of a couple who have actually had, um, you know, press releases and who have made uh, a point, you know, in going to look for uh, a type designer to design uh, numerals for their watches. But that is a whole competence in themselves. And when you think of how important on a dial which is essentially, you know, what makes a, a watch, I'd say 80% of what makes a watch attractive or not is the dial. So when you think of how important just the design of the numerals is in relation to the overall perception of what a, a watch dial is, it's mind-blowing to think that not every watch company has an in-house, <laughs> every watch company should <laughs> have an in-house type designer. You know, it. it it's it's it should be how dare they not sorry i said how dare they not how dare I, they not yeah, I mean, they, they, should, they should have yeah i agree with you competences are, are just there and literally it's people in the same as switzerland is a tiny place you just make it one phone call you can find someone who designs some numerals for you because there's plenty of type designers and graphic designers who would love to do that but somehow so so coming back to your your question there is and and that's to 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 be fair, that's that's its charm to an extent. It's a bit irritating for me, for example, sometimes, but um, but it has a bit of a charm. Um, the fact that it's still so much, so much of of the ways um, this, uh, watches are designed still comes from a purely industrial logic where the letter shapes, for example, and the, and the, the letters and the numerals that were used um, historically in watches would be 
um, would have to be uh, prepared physically would be stamps, essentially, would be ready-made stamps um, that would be turned into, you know, the, 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 the final stamp that would stamp the dial to give the name of the brand or, or any other information on that. So you only had that many different alphabets, that many different things that would themselves be designed by people who make stamps and not not graphic designers. And, and the watch uh, world has this sort of thing of only working very incrementally and referring itself to its own history and its own legacy, not outside and not really anything or very, very slowly integrating things outside of the watch industry. So those things evolve extremely, um, extremely slowly. And then I want, can I give a little story uh, about uh, numerals in on the watch dial? I have a little story for you to exemplify this. Yes, I'd love to hear it. Okay, so one other issue is also the lack not only of competences um, to design, but of competences to even know what makes a good numeral or for example, uh, or things like this. So I had, I once bought a watch that had a uh, retrograde, uh, retrograde date um, sort of uh, okay. d- d- display. And so yeah. it had back to an initial position. So it's sort of a, a dial, that indicates the date, but the hand doesn't follow a circular path. Exactly. So what happens with that is that the um, you have an, a sort of angular, you have uh, increments of the same angle uh, that the the hand will sort of skip uh, to uh, to a certain angle every new day to uh, show a different a different date. So those dates are separated by dots. Um, and and occupy a, a very specific space between two dots, which is always the same space, so that the hand can skip from one to the next uh, and and show you know the middle of each space. Now, um, numerals are by default um, when you receive a font uh, a font file a digital font file are what we call uh, monospace. So they are designed so that if you use, um, if you're creating a sheet, uh, um, you know, uh, Excel sheet, for example, so you type numbers one below the other, each number will align in, in a column with all the numerals above so that you can create, you know, you can create addition um, where all the numbers add with the numbers underneath so they will align vertically which will not be the case with letters for example because an i it has occupies a much shorter space than an m so the you know after a while the letters won't align um if you type words under each other so that's not how a um how the numerals are designed by default so what does it mean? It means that the one, the, the number one, uh, the numeral one will have a lot of space around uh, visually will be a tiny, you know, a tiny, um, you know, bar um, in a large space, whereas the uh, eight, for example, will fill that space a lot more since the space is always, always given. So if you put a one next to two, the space, uh, the visual space to the left, if you write 12, 
the space, there will be much more space uh, to the left of the 12 because of that space next to the one that surrounds the one, whereas the eight occupying much more of that, that block of space, the, the space next to the eight will be, um, will be much shorter. So if you put dots next to, to each, to the one and next to the eight, at the edge of that box that those numerals you uh, fill, then you will visually have much more space to the left between the dot and the one than between the, the, the right-hand dot and the eight and the two. So it will look like the 12 is pushed to the right. So it, it's very, a very... I, sorry? Visually, the proportions are... Yeah. So, so the end result, people have to follow along with the map. Yeah, it looks like things are off-centered in a weird way, even though they they are. It's just it's exactly. it's the sizes of the uh, characters. Exactly. So the twelve will look not centered. So it's it's very and so again, you're talking about a very expensive watch, uh, uh, perpetual calendar that, that that I bought, and there's three indications on or three or four things that are indicated on the dial, and they are all indicated by numbers. I could not get over the fact that the 12 was not centered between the dots. That's what appeared on, on that watch that I bought to the point that after two weeks, I had to sell it because it, it's such a simple thing, simple dial, and you just have those numbers that are not centered between those dots of the retrograde. I wonder if that's a warranty issue. I wonder if it's like a, if you could claim that's a defective product. You're like, okay, I bought a very expensive watch that said it was for you know detail-obsessed people like me. And look at what you did. Do you even realize what type of fonts you were using here? Like, do you think that that would force a return? That might. Well, yeah, it was it was a pre-owned watch in this case, but um, you know, I was very upset. Um, <laughs> and um, and yeah, so but that but again for me, what what is <laughs> it's both the brand having not you know not knowing who to to call to get the the, the numbers, but also no one flagged it. At, at the brand, no one saw that and was like, okay, what is the issue there? There is an issue in the way those numbers are spaced because you have to build a, a sensitivity for it. The same way, you know, it took me years to appreciate a hand-finished movement and to really understand or really feel the, the, the difference uh, between, of course, I know there is one. I can look at one and be like, yeah, okay, I see a difference. But now I can be, I can look at a hand-finished movement and be like, oh, wow, I don't need to think about it. I don't need to be, you know, I, it, it's obvious. Whereas, you know, so you need to build those. But again, back to the, that, that thing, there's no one in any given watch brand or, or very few. Now there's a few. It, it's starting. But um, still to this day, very few watch brands will have a designer within their, you know, within their, their design team that will be like, oh, there's a problem with those numbers. What is it? And and who will be able to recognize what the issue is, if that makes sense. Okay, okay. So this is what I'm thinking right now, which I hope other watch lovers appreciate. In watch enthusiasm, it's sort of considered that being into watch movements and the engineering, how they work, is sort of the upper echelon of nerdery, right? Like, it's one thing to like a cool looking watch and to wear it and to buy it, but to sit there and nerd out about the movement is sort of like a different level of in-depth enthusiasm. What I'm realizing now is that what we're talking about 
which is the the design of the dial and the hands and the hour markers and the fonts might actually be even more nerdy than like the watch movement uh, obsessed people. Like we might win actually in the comp. You know what I mean? If like it's like which one is more esoteric sounding and weird? I think that we just totally won. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Like totally, they have to get to our level now. We've 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 outnerded them. <laughs> um, we should probably have another discussion, and this is what I want to do because we're we're going actually over time, and I still want to talk about tattooing. But another discussion, we should take like four, you know, like iconic Swiss watch designs. We should just sort of like break them apart and talk about oh, it. Like look at like an Omega Master and just both of us look at it on the screen and talk about all these things and, and noticing stuff that no one would really think about until we started speaking about it. Because I, I think you, you can't really appreciate watch design until you appreciate how watches are physically manufactured. To understand the connection to them is really what opens up your eyes to a lot of things. You know what I mean? I think, that, I think that's a genius idea. So tattooing is another thing that you're really into. And if you look at all the areas of your expertise from watches um, you know, to, to type, typography and type design and, of course, you know, uh, tattooing, it's all things are related to space, using space, uh, putting lines and marks in space to create uh, feelings and emotions and new types of functionality and things like that. Is, is tattooing um, a big thing in, in Switzerland like it is maybe in the U.S.? I'm, I'm, I'm someone who, uh, I, I like the art form. I don't, I don't have tattoos. I think it's neat. And I've noticed over the last maybe 10 years, maybe related to social media, like tattooing got like way more popular. Like a lot of young people started getting tattoos and things like that. You know, you obviously started getting into it before that. Um, but talk a little bit about the art form of tattooing in Switzerland uh, as it relates to the culture. Because, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if most people think of a specific style when I think of Swiss or even, you know, I think England, England has a particular style, but like, what would, what would Swiss tattooing be well, like? That's, that's, a, that's a very good idea. And now I had a conversation recently about someone who was asking me, um, was trying to write a book in, about Swiss tattooing. And, and we, you know, opened with the question, is there such a thing as Swiss tattooing? Um, and again, I will, I would say the following, um, Tattooing has uh, Switzerland has had um, the the same effect on tattooing than it has on watchmaking in in the very early stages when the the first you know French uh, watchmakers came to Switzerland or when um, graphic design and type design came from uh, for, from Germany or, or printing uh, technique um, techniques um, for, for example it. This balance of um, aesthetic, obviously, you know, a certain sense of of aesthetic uh, beauty, um, but this uh, th- this focus on what is well done and and craftsmanship, and and also, and I think, and 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 you brought up at some point the the relation to Japan. I think that. Um, the, the 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 parallel to Japan is very relevant and applies to many levels because Switzerland having not having that um sort of that aristocratic history has not really separated high arts from 
um, from from popular arts, uh, as in craftsmanship, for example, and, and craft. Um, so what happens is that there, there is a real respect for tradition and craftsmanship in Switzerland that is not condescending um, the way it is in a lot of uh, of places um, in France, for example, where you know you have France is, is uh, created the notion of our brute. So obviously we like our brute, whatever, but there's still a certain a certain dimension of 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 if not despising, but uh, of of condescendence in the notion of what our brute is and folk art and etc. Et Whereas in uh, in Switzerland or Japan, the idea of of craft being able to reach the highest level of beauty um, that that can be reached, there there isn't any 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 barrier in a, any glass ceiling between craftsmanship tradition and high arts fine arts um the, do you find that in italy as well well the the, the french style kind of idea of, of high arts etc so um and and japan have both in common and so that's very much something that is relevant in in the tattoo world as well where you very much have something that is where you cannot create a tattoo without executing it. You have to be both executing and designing it. So there's no separating design and execution. So you can have a, a greatly designed thing or great uh, um, illustration. If it's not well executed, well, it, it won't be a good tattoo and the other way around as well. And so um, I think Switzerland with its pre-existing culture of tradition and, and, and craftsmanship um, really created a very fertile ground for, for tattooing, um, which is what happened, especially in, in the 90s and early 2000s. So, um, so I wouldn't say there's a style. Switzerland is not really a place of style in general. And, and you know, you can, that, that you know, that you, you, it's expressed, it's expressed throughout uh, society, but um, but uh, but but Switzerland has the ability to to push to the next level anything that has this component of of design and execution, and that is what happened in the tattoo world as well. And on top of that, and and well, for the same reason. Switzerland, Swiss people don't have the same embedded reluctance and 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 uh, or, or the same kind of um, uh, uh, stigma against tattooing that you find in in uh, post aristocratic um, uh, nations because because it's seen it's perceived within the, the the sort of the mentality of of class is perceived as a, as a sort of you know low class thing um which is not you know you don't really have this sort of class mentality in 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 Switzerland and it's something which by the way even even France is still is still dealing with you know whether they like it or not they're still very much thinking in those terms England of course uh Italy Italy very oh, much yeah. but not in Switzerland so this the 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 stigma that prevents tattooing from growing um 
in certain places where it can grow pretty freely in America and 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 cross barriers in America or in Switzerland, um, the way the way it doesn't in in France or England. So um, so yeah, I, I don't know if I answered your question, but um, well, you you did you did your best. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> in in regard to your design aesthetic, you at least compared to the average person that I've met come across a little bit as a rebel, which is not a bad thing, especially in Los Angeles. Um, what do you attribute to your rebelliousness and how does that influence your tattoo design? Which again, I probably speak about it quite crudely as not knowing too much about tattoo design. It's for people that don't know, you know, your, your, your very prolific design, um, you know, base, but it's, it's geometric, I would say, right. It's, it's very much, you know, it, it actually, now that I think it's very Swiss, it's almost like, you know, the, 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 the sort of, art of, of blueprints and, and structure and things like that. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a geomet geometric uh, appreciation of engineering in it and stuff like that. But, you know, let, let's start with you as a rebel. Would you agree? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, I, I think I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rebel because I have been raised to not accept things just the way they are, um, to question and um, and trust myself um, in my opinions. But also I grew up in an extremely diverse, uh, culturally diverse environment, both in my family where uh, we were Swiss from both the German and the French speaking side. Uh, my, my grandmother was Italian. I had French in my family as well um, with Catholic, Protestant, um, you know, some extremely politically, um, politically sort of engaged and, and involved um, people. Um, and, and then, so I had this sort of a very diverse kind of um, culture around me where I needed to make sense of all of it. And essentially my parents said, well, follow, follow your heart and follow your conscience. And, and that's what I did. And so I'm, I'm not a rebel because, as a sort, as a sort of an institutional rebel, I don't rebel for the, the the for the sake of rebelling. I don't, I don't, I hate the term radical. For example, I think it's it's one of the most. I guess these things take on new meaning today, right? Like uh, just a couple of years ago, I would have said rebel. You know, <laughs> it would have meant something today. It means something yeah, quite but, more but like, intense. But for me, I think that to to rebel is just to not accept things just because. And and that applies to religion, that applies to politics, that applies to, to work. But also, for the same reason, I am perfectly fine accepting certain elements of, of what uh, of what I like. And then there's things I like and things I dislike in everywhere. And it, as much as, you know, for example, with Switzerland, I never, I had to leave Switzerland to do what I, I, I wanted to do. But I, I still love Switzerland. There's so much that I still identify with and, and love about Switzerland, and I have no issue. And even down to the way I treat people, I can I can fall out with with someone or, or really dislike some things about people. But it, it's very different. If, it's very difficult for me to really reject things as a whole because I, I I tend to see the detail of things and the nuances in in people and situations and uh, to a fault sometimes so so really I think my my you know rebellion is is perceived is a uh, is in relation to, to a context where people think that I'm re rebelling because I don't just accept things as they are um but but I'm not I'm, I'm just 
doing my thing and doing what I and following my heart. And then often, eventually, people realize that I'm I'm pretty fine with with you know the context. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things I I completely dislike and would never put myself uh, in presence of. But I think you know people could be surprised to see me um, also be conservative about certain things, about certain moral values, about certain certain things and. Uh, you know, and things that people don't necessarily associate together, but I don't really care. I just, I just decide to, to, to do what I think is right. And also, by the way, I will completely happily contradict myself and say like, you know what? I was wrong. I, I disagree with what I used to think. And I have reasons to come to a new understanding now and a new position. And, uh, uh I try to not, I try to not, um, as long as there is a reason why I will change and that, the change goes even further towards my values of, you know, of, of, of justice, of uh, equality and things that I believe in, then I'm perfectly fine adjusting the, the means to those ends indefinitely. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's my, that's my answer. Yeah. Thank you for, I think, you know, when I said rebel, I think it was in the context of, you know, most of your sort of Swiss neighbors and colleagues and things like that. Here, you are just seen as open-minded. That's really just the term that would come. And I say that because while Swiss people are very confident in their opinions, Swiss people have an opinion, you are opinionated, but you're open-minded and sort of adding the element of open-mindedness that what I grew up with might not be the best answer is the, I think, the added element. Um, final question uh, and, and again, I appreciate you, you going with us a little, bit, a little bit longer than our normal hour, is where do you want to see Swiss design go? You are probably a little bit more forward thinking because you're open-mindedness. But in order to be competitive for the next 10 years, what do you sort of recommend to your colleagues in the Swiss design community about what they can do to remain relevant and how they can push the envelope of Swiss design uh, to better adapt to a changing world? So for me, I have to say... What I truly hope, and it's not just Swiss design, in, in, it's, it's Switzerland. And I think it's happening. Um, it's happening slowly, like, or, or with a slight delay, how things tend to happen in Switzerland. But um, I just think generally, I would really like Swiss applied design. I mean, obviously, design in general is applied. It's applied arts. But in Switzerland, design tends to also be seen as a fine art in itself. So it's not always applied. It's, a, it's an important nuance here. So I, I don't really care about non-applied design. I think that, sure, people can endlessly, you know, do little things in, in, in classrooms and for their little friends and do their little uh, competitions. They love doing this in, in Switzerland and give them give, even giving each other prices and stuff. Uh, that That's an interesting to me. Um, I'm interested in, in design applied. So, for example, in the watch industry. And for me, I think that Switzerland in general, uh, but design, of course, because that's the, what I see and what I'm involved in, should now take a solid step to be like, okay, how do things really work today? What kind of uh, am amazing wealth of competences and creativity do we have next to next to us just there in Switzerland? Um, the creativity exists in Switzerland. It's just overlooked. 
It's just neglected. And I there's a lot of reasons why, and there's quote unquote good reasons why. I think Switzerland the, the the livelihood of Switzerland as a nation and the, the success of Switzerland as a nation relies on the fact that it doesn't that is it that it is reliable and that it is steady and that it's not taking too many risks. So that's that's fair enough. That's that's granted and, and that's fine. But I think a certain update of uh, the industries that use design in Switzerland needs to happen. And I think that uh, in the next five, 10 years, maybe, you'll see a whole new generation of, uh, of uh, directors, uh, CEOs. Um, I'm going to give you just a small little story here and an anecdote. Uh, one very good client who became a friend as well in Switzerland um, works at a fairly high level at at uh, a big Swiss pharmaceutical company. And he's uh, probably in his mid-40s, I would say, um, has kids, has a fairly traditional life all in all. He's quite religious, but he's also an ex- a scientist and extremely interesting character. Um, and, you know, at some point we try to pitch for me to intervene and talk about innovation and some things like this at his um uh at his company and you know that that didn't quite happen i think it might that was just before the whole covid crisis so it could still happen but you know he made it pretty clear that it was a long shot and that it was still a fairly old school company but that old school company is also one of those who will be you know, who has been the most involved in creating um, uh, COVID tests and, and who will probably be involved in, in the whole vac- vaccines, et cetera. Those companies are at the at the highest level of scientific innovation, of, you know, production of things that the world needs in general, for lack of of better term. And it's a shame sometimes that the way they work internally can be, you know, pretty pretty reactionary sometimes and pretty backwards um i think there is uh something to be said about you know the the the, the fact that uh switzerland can can relax a little bit maybe and try to enjoy life and enjoy things there is in switzerland um two last little things when you build a a, a building in switzerland there's a thing called Kulturprozent, uh, which is that a percentage of your budget needs to go uh, towards the acquisition of a, a work of art to display in your building. Um, and, and this is, yeah, and it's a law. It's something that you have to have. Um, and so I just wish that this went just a bit beyond public art now. Um, this has been in place for a very long time. So Switzerland is able to take such initiatives, um, but it just needs to go a little bit further now. And I think it should, uh, and now it should reach the sort of corporate level. I think corporate innovation and cultural innovation needs to be incorporated, uh, pun intended, and it needs to happen in the Swiss uh, corporate culture. And, And that obviously, 
you know, happens on many levels. I think that uh, it touches on other ethical issues such as environmental issues and social justice. Um, so so that would be one thing. Um, in the watch world as well, I do know a very high ranking executive at one of the, you know, top watch brands, uh, traditional watch brands that everyone knows um, who has extensive tattoo coverage. But no one knows it. He's a slightly, you know, older gentleman. Um, I know it. I asked him to do an interview for one of my tattoo magazines. He declined, which I expected. Um, and but, you know, I approached him as well, asking, hey, would you consider doing, you know, advertising in, in one of and and he couldn't do that in the name of the brand. And, you know, I don't take it as something negative. I just think it's it's pretty representative uh, of how Swiss watch brands in particular uh, work. Also, by the way, one of the reasons why Hublot is, is so ahead of a lot of other brands in terms of certain things, such as uh, the connection to culture, um, because we didn't talk much about Hublot, but that's obviously a big part of, of what I do and to really give props where, where props uh, is due is, is um, for me, Hublot has had that uh, open-mindedness that obviously is very much in the image of, um, of Jean-Claude Biver and, and now um, Ricardo Guadalupe. And so, so I think, um, but anyway, so I just hope to see Switzerland as a whole you know, get with the program a little bit and as a whole, take a, a serious step towards um, towards involving more cultural projects and more open mindedness. OK, so there's a lot of great designers in Switzerland and, you know, the business powers that be should in, empower them as as the culture has done in other regards to success and, and as is available there. OK, that's that's great. Well, Maxine, thank you so much for uh, this very interesting discussion uh, for Superlative. Um, I think that what I what I really like about it as its application of what I've been trying to do with these shows is talk about what's going on in the minds of the people that are responsible for so many of the things in in sort of the watch industry, whether it's making watches, designing watches, buying watches, appreciating watches, talking about watches. You've shed light on so much for people to think about. Um, Sing Blue is your company for tattoos where people can go to see more of that stuff. So um, Maxime Pleshiabushi can be found uh, everywhere. Uh, he's got uh, a lot of followers and great things. Um, that's one of the challenges of having an audio show. There's no visuals, but I just encourage people to go see his aesthetic. Maxime, thank you so much. And uh, I'll have you back soon. We'll talk more about some specific watches. Yeah, absolutely. And then thank you again. Um, it, it was fantastic. I wish we had two more hours. But um, no, I, ha I had a great time. And thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?